Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems, many of them overweight, even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn. She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because at the end of the day, that was going to be all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation. Look, for black people, this is a hurdle that we've been 16, it's, it's 19 about on. It's access, you know. It, 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 it's just, it's just this, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And even when you show you can, the, the real believers are the ones of us who are actually doing it, right? We're in the Bay Area with two iconic citizens of this community. One I think of, Joe Marshall, living legend. I've heard so much about you for so long, and I'm so excited that you could have this conversation with us. It's hard to even think about what the uh, attributions uh, for you should be. I think the organization uh, that you're working with now, you told us, is rebranded as Alive and Free. Uh, but before that, it was the Omega Boys Club, and uh, you also have done work with Street Soldiers. You're the beneficiary of numerous awards and recognition and uh, doing what I think is really invaluable work in this community uh, on the issue of violence, uh, work that needs to be better understood around the world. So welcome and thanks for being here, Joe. Thank you for saying it. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm really glad you're here. And somebody else who's very special to share our strength into our No Kid Hungry campaign because she's been so involved, Tanya Holland, who's just done an amazing uh, job building community here in the Bay Area and in Oakland, the chef owner of Brown Sugar Kitchen, uh, cookbook author, Food Network star, um, and as I say, uh, active and enthusiastic volunteer and contributor to the anti-hunger work of Share Our Strength. So, Tanya, thanks for being here as well. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, I'd, I'd ask Tanya if she'd brought any waffles or biscuits uh, <laughs> to get us started this morning, but we're going to have to wait for that. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm that cartoon. People look at me and they see, like, chicken bones and, you know, <laughs> because well, they just, like, they think fried chicken and waffles when they see me. <laughs> and all of our favorite things. So I'd like to just start by having each of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds. One of the things that uh, we really believe at Share Our Strength is that everybody's got a strength to share. Everybody's got something to give. It's not just uh, the politicians and our elected officials that can make a difference in uh, our communities. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about the two of you, even though you're very different, uh, is that you've both been building community in very powerful ways in this area uh, without the platform of being an elected official, without the platform of being a, you know, a millionaire or a billionaire uh, business leader, uh, both entrepreneurs in your own kind of way. And so, uh, Tanya, let's start with you in terms of how you got to be doing this. And uh, I'm guessing that uh, as a restaurateur, you're an early riser on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't really by choice. I mean, a lot of people ask me how I chose West Oakland, and I, you know, I kind of feel like it, it chose me. I had ambitions to create a upscale Creole bistro, and um, I couldn't find the real estate that I wanted to in a, you know, a, uh, an area that was, you know, more traveled, there were, where there was a denser population. So I found this space in West Oakland, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and. Um, it was. It's a happy accident, Brown Sugar Kitchen. I never aspired to cook breakfast. I never aspired to get up this early on a regular basis. <laughs> trust me. I was in New York City, you know, closing restaurants at midnight. Uh, but I just came. You know, I came to Oakland and I just fell in love with it. I and I. I love how integrated it is socially and the African American history there. And I saw that there was no 
establishment, eating establishment, uh, dining establishment that was representing the cuisine in the way that I thought it should be. And um, so that's kind of how Brown Sugar Kitchen was born. And maybe go back even just a little bit farther in terms of where the impulse to cook uh, <laughs> and feed people came Absolutely. from. Absolutely. Well, you know, they always say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And um, my parents moved to Rochester when I was two. My dad had a job with Kodak, an engineer. And um, they were both from the South, from Virginia and Louisiana. And when they got there, they were missing their home cooking. So they would cook that food and invite friends over to eat it. And, you know, so that sort of hospitality was in my blood. In addition to that, they founded this gourmet cooking club when they were 27 and 28, I think, which I'm very impressed by now. That went on for 20 years. Um, and they cooked soup to nuts every month. They met a different couple's home and it was always three black couples and three white couples for 20 years. And they became good friends. And, you know, the population wasn't that more integrated or diverse at that time. But that was pretty, you know, significant for that period in the 70s and um, 80s. And so I was exposed to all these cuisines, and then I was trying to mess around the kitchen. And they ended up buying me this little miniature refrigerator stove and sink and putting it in the garage so I would stay out of the kitchen. And it was just something I did. And then uh, I went to college, applied to engineering schools like my parents thought I should. Engineering. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, None of my friends could cook. They were all eating ramen noodles and macaroni and cheese out of a box. And so I started cooking and hosting dinner parties. And, you know, I, I, it was just a way I knew to bring people together. And also it's something I enjoyed. And then I started working in restaurants in college to have some extra money and still didn't know what I was going to do. But I was very inspired by the people in the industry. Again, the diversity of backgrounds, education, and how, you know, everybody got along, though. And... I thought, like, this is what I want to do. I want to create environment. And I, and I again, had not seen a representation of, you know, what I grew up with and diverse dining establishments, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And so I saw that a lot of the most successful restaurants were chef-owner-operators, so I decided to go to cooking school, and I went to cooking school in France at La Varenne and just worked my way up in kitchens and held the vision and, you know, somehow made my way to Oakland. Oh, incredible story. <laughs> and, you know, I found that with the chefs and the restaurateurs that we work with and those that I know, which, you know, number now that share our strength in the, in the thousands, the, the path uh, that most of them took is kind of the most uh, circuitous and the least linear of perhaps any profession <laughs> that I've ever been, you know, been Absolutely. aware of. Um, now, Joe, how about you? I think you were, am I correct that you were a math teacher for a number of years, um, for which, uh, you know, of all your accomplishments, that may be the one that I respect the most. I've got a sixth grader, if you can believe it. And the only thing uh, my wife and I cannot help him with is his math. It is, I don't know how, it's probably changed maybe since you were teaching, but man, that's hard work. Uh, it was hard, but it was fun. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed teaching. I, I started teaching right out of college. Uh, you heard about USF and where one of your sons, I guess when your sons went, well, that, was, that was my school, went to USF. And um, I was, uh, I planned to be a lawyer, <laughs> but uh, I missed the law school exam because I was out partying the previous night. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sort of the campus uh everybody knew because i was the campus radical i was at, i was there when there were times where this was what year they call it the movement yeah so what years were these uh i was there from 64 to 69 okay so that was the heart of the movement really yeah right? and, and 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 i was the, i founded the bsu on my campus and 
you know, we had our thing. wasn't as big as some other schools, but we had our thing. So I was kind of notorious around the school. And, and so when I actually got back, it seemed like everybody knew I had missed the law school exam. So <laughs> the dean of the School of Education said, you know, you can be a lawyer anytime. But for now, why don't you go into education and become a teacher? So I got into a very special summer program and uh, ended up going straight into teaching. I was 22 years old and started teaching high school. The <laughs> kids were four years younger than me, and I looked younger than all the kids. I remember the first day I went to the high school, they, I went into the teacher's lounge, and the teachers came and got me out of there because they thought I was one of the students. But <laughs> never went to law school, fell in love with education, ended up teaching math for 18 years in middle school, uh, became an assistant principal for years, a long time in the, in the school district here, and I always, I was, I was old school, you know. I was. They used to call me Mean Mr. Marshall. That was my nickname. <laughs> homework, me, strict. Homework, strict. I literally, would call your house if you didn't from my classroom in front of the other kids if you didn't show up. I mean, yeah, I loved it, and um, I figured if the kids could survive me as an instructor, they wouldn't have any problem, you know, with any professor at any university they decided to go to. But you know, something would uh, seem to always happen to my kids when they got away from me. You know, drugs, gangs, pregnancy, literally ended up going to the funerals of my former students. Mm. And so I realized that being a good teacher wasn't enough. Uh, I like to say my kids were getting A's in math, but F's in life. So, I, you know, I only had one thing to offer, and that was me. So 29 years ago, maybe <laughs> 30 years ago, next February, I put, you know, a bunch of kids in a room in community center uh, here in San Francisco, and uh, I said, "Look, I'm, I want to. We got to figure our way out of this. You know, I don't like going to funerals. This isn't working out for you, for me. It certainly isn't working out for you and your family." So I said, "If you stick with this, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna figure a better way." And you know, they, I guess they call it violence prevention work, but my thing, I want to give them something positive. So I always talk about them staying alive and free, alive and harmed by violence and free from incarceration and that was has begun our be, became our slogan even then and the thing I wanted to offer them was and this is just because education was such a big deal to me as that I told them that when they graduated from high school or got their GED and every time I say this even though it was 29 years later I still like why the hell did I say this right they could pick the college and I'd find the money to help pay for it <laughs> um, and you know they say that God takes care of babies and fools. Well, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a baby, but that was a very, I think, looking back on a very foolish statement. But uh, we also believe that if you do good things, good things will come to you. And if you're willing to do right, people want to help you. So, you know, in 1993, I had my first college graduate. And then uh, now, at what, this year, I got 216. Uh, you know, we've been able to put through school and pay for it. And that you found the funding for to to do that. Yeah, it's manna from heaven. It just yeah. seems to come. Uh, give away a lot of money every year, uh, a lot, um, and over the years. But it's it, it's it's been great. Two hundred sixteen college graduates. I know you don't like numbers, but <laughs> sixty of them have graduate degrees. But the big thing is they're all alive and free. And the kids you were seeing, like when you were a teacher, um, um, it sounds like you're saying that you were seeing kids who had real potential and who had real promise, but. There were all these other factors, whether it was violence or drugs or family situations, that were pulling them off course. You, you could have, you, you, <laughs> absolutely. I was, it was absolutely. I don't, you know, nobody's, you know, you know, when when a baby's born and and the, and the mom looks at her child and says, "My baby's gonna be," you know, 
and they literally they expect that you know that the great things are going to happen and and the young person when he early on he talks about when I grow up I'm going to be well you know they don't they don't see an early death they don't see a prison number or a jacket on it's the circumstances in life uh they get the kids call it getting caught up but you know be able to guide them through all of that because you know they they yeah, they, they, a lot of times they're just doing stuff to survive, except they don't really learn how to survive. They learn to die and go to prison. So sort of guiding through that maze is is is, is a real challenge because there are times when I'm the only one around saying this is the the, the right way to go. And uh, But, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun, but it's a challenge. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and it's traditionally a time of gratitude and reflection and one in which many of us ask ourselves how we can be helping others in our community. At Chair Strength, we've come up with a very simple but fun way for you to get involved. It's called Friendsgiving. To find out all the steps for success in hosting a Friendsgiving party, go to nokidhungry.org. And just imagine being at Thanksgiving dinner while kids in our country are thanking you. I want to come back to, uh, in a moment, what you, know, what you talk about as the prescription, but also hear from you, Tanya, and you, Joe, about you know, in the communities that you work, what are those communities like today? What are young people facing? What are, what are families uh, facing? Um, I mentioned earlier that I think of you both as community builders. What's your sense in Oakland? You know, for those of us on the East Coast, we always hear that Oakland is a pretty tough, pretty hard place in terms of you know, people being able to make it. There's just a lot of challenges that face the community, but there's, of course, a lot of bright spots and a lot of potential as well and a lot of inspiration there. Um, you know, restaurants are, in many ways, hubs of a community. Um, and so you see lots of things probably that other folks don't see. I'm curious, Tanya, what your, your bird's eye view is. Yeah. I mean, there's just, you know, economic challenges living in the Bay area. And, you know, now there's a lot of people getting priced out of San Francisco, moving to Oakland. So we're really seeing a kind of a shift in Oakland. Um, West Oakland, where my restaurant is based, still has a lot of uh, you know, lower income housing and, and uh, families that are, have been disenfranchised. I mean, it's, I was just saying to someone last night, I, I used to live five blocks from the restaurant for most of the time I was in the restaurant. I moved to a n- new neighborhood last year and it was just really hard walking out every day and just seeing these people down out that, that look like me. They could be my aunt or my uncle and, or, you know, my brother or my sister it's but unemployed and unemployed on you know some substance or work in the mm. streets or you know just no access to anything food health services and um and who knows what happened along the way you know some mental illness or you know just not having access to resources so um it's uh it's interesting and and the kids i feel like you know, because I, I do hire people from the neighborhood, and um, I did especially when I first opened. Now a lot of them aren't able to live there, and they've moved to uh, other towns. How many do you employ? I have about 25 employees. About 25. Yeah, Mostly young, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. probably like 25 to 30 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is the sort of average age. Um, I just feel like there's sort of, you know, like... Joe was saying, I'm going to be, when I grow up, there's just no, like, plan for the future. There's, not that there's no hope, but I just, I'm really stunned that, you know, some of these kids just don't seem to have, like, a vision for their their life moving forward. It's just like they're working right now, and, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck, and they're paying their bills, and they're coming to work, and, you know, no sense of, you know, 
bettering or getting more education or getting more exposure. And my goal is I really want to try to expose them. I mean, I didn't get to see someone who looked like me when I came up working in restaurants. And so I'm trying to create opportunity for them, um, which is why I want a bigger restaurant and more restaurants, you know, so that I can create opportunity so that they can see like, well, she can do it. She looks like some of it is just modeling it. Yeah. So that they have something to aspire to. Absolutely. Because there's there's just not many models out there yep. for them, and, and especially in my industry. Joe, I want to hear say a little bit more about what the prescription is for this disease of violence and then what it will take to expand it beyond the kids that you personally are able to touch. Um, well, I guess it started for me with people kept asking me. They would walk in and see these kids, and they were like, coming from all over the Bay Area and they were, you know, they were gang members and drug dealers and, and you know, there's a lot of turfs here and they just couldn't believe that all these kids were in the same room <laughs> actually getting along and, and uh, you know, they were, it was an after school program, everybody was doing well and they'd look at the results and they said, how can, how do you do this? And, and actually I didn't know. <laughs> uh, uh, I would, you know, I, I had all the the thoughts, you know, I'm, I'm dedicated, I love kids, you know, all that sort of thing. But I always felt there was a method to the madness. It just took me a, uh, a while to figure out what that methodology was. And I, and I remember when it first came to me, I went, actually there was a, a, one of these 90s movies. Uh, I went to see a film called Menace to Society years ago. And I remember watching the film and at the end of the movie, uh, I just went back to the car and I said, wow, you know, everybody's dying and I, I, I sort of went back and looked I, I, I guess it's sort of like what they have with CSA now CSI now these shows where yep. they perform an autopsy on a body and try to figure out the cause of death mm-hmm. well I sort of looked at it that way and I said you know what could have been removed from from uh, that you know everything I saw in those communities and neighborhood that would prevent the deaths and that was my sort of my first list of risk factors and uh you know, I, and and that and from then I began to develop this methodology, which I now call the alive and free prescription, of how I could develop a lifestyle for young people that would decrease the possibility that they would end up dead or in prison. So let's talk about some of the obstacles to scaling up what you do, Tanya. We, we were talking before we um, turned on the mics here about. Um, the importance of you growing your restaurant business. And we were talking just a few minutes ago about how that can serve as a really important model for other young people. But there's certain hurdles, some of which are related to race, some of which are related to gender. You're talking about access to capital. What have you found there in terms of what's standing between you and scaling up the, uh, the kind of the entrepreneurship that you've um, brought to, brought to the Bay area? Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's, again, like you said, I'm, I'm trying to model, but there were no models. So, you know, I'll go to um, investors. They haven't seen anyone who looks like me doing what I want to do. So, I'm, you know, I'm pioneering and there's maybe no uh, belief or trust that I can do it. And, you know, it sort of happened with my first, with, with Brown Sugar Kitchen, um, I remember telling someone at the Chamber of Commerce, it's like, I am going to promote the heck out of Oakland. Like, you wait. And I, you know, I could not have predicted what Brown Sugar Kitchen has become and the access to the media and, you know, that I've had and how it's become this destination restaurant. I mean, I had no idea because people thought I was crazy opening up in that location. But, you know, the obstacles, I think, um, 
I mean, the, the hardest thing, and I don't know if Joe feels this too, I think the, for me, what I notice about racism I find most painful is when people have low expectations of you and they don't expect you to be intelligent or ambitious or, you know, resourceful. And, and that's, that's hard, you know, it's like, I don't know, that judgment is just hard to, that's yeah. a big hurdle. That, what you can know, you do about that? I remember George W. Bush of all people talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations was his yeah. phrase. And that, you know, that, that really sets a tone. Yeah. Well, I, I think she hit on it, period. You know, d- d- it's not that it doesn't work. I mean, just obviously, and I just start going to the numbers and the statistics of, of, of being able to save young people. It's not that it, it doesn't work. It's, it's But it's just that I believe in it. And but there's an entire view that it's like an aberration, you know, that, that that's not real. There is a sort of, a, it's not only low expectations, it's like you really can't do anything. You really can't do anything about it, about, you know, uh, uh, the, the conditions that these young people face. Uh, you know, it's like, like I got lucky or I got special kids and all of that stuff. And I th- it, it goes back to just, you know, I mean, look, for black people, this is a hurdle that we've been 16, it's, it's 19 on. It's access, you know. It, it's, it, it's just, it's it's just this, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And even when you show you can, the, the real believers are the ones of us who are actually doing it, right? And so we're always fighting that. I don't care if it's a restaurant business or if it's a kid business, whatever, what, whatever you're into of what you actually can be and what you actually are. Because, you know, I mean, I always say black, being black in America is like you start in this hole and you're continually climbing out of this hole. You're continually climbing out of this hole. And, you know, with us, we go in and out of, st- out of fashion, right? So, <laughs> so right. in the 60s, we were in, right, for a few minutes. But, you know, we've been out for a long time. And, and, and when I talk to young people all the time, they'll eventually they'll come to you and they say, well, you know, Dr. Mike, you know, it's a setup for us to fail. And I say, yeah, you're right. It's always been a setup for you to fail. And the thing is, you just refuse to fail, right? And I always talk to them, my job is to keep you from falling into the traps, and it's your job to remove those traps. <laughs> no, no, you, <laughs> you have you no idea. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I got on the board of trustees at my university, at USF, on the board of trustees. And, and the, the viewpoint that I brought was like, they were like, oh, I never thought. When I, if I hear one more time, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> right. I'm going to be, 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 because you can't think about it that way because you don't have the lens and the experience that I have and then the appreciation, but you got to be in the room to do it. You provide some, a lens that people just don't get. Uh, I'm glad you raised that because one of the things I, I wanted to talk about, and we'll have to wrap up in a moment, but I wanted to ask you to tell us about, um, you know, one success story that has meant the most to you. Um, I know there's hundreds of them, but if you could pick out one just so somebody can understand, what does this mean for a young person's life? How has somebody really turned around their life, and where are they today? Uh, what would be an example um, for, don't, don't for you, me. Joe? <laughs> hard, hard to pick between your children? Uh, well, I, I'm going to pick out this, this young man I met in the youth authority. Uh, he was there for three counts of armed robbery and an attempt to murder on a police officer. And he, you know, he got there because... How old was he? He was, when I met him, he was 16 years old. And wow, that's... He was moving, he's from East Oakland. Mm-hmm. The kid was doing great, but at the age of nine, his mother got on drugs, and basically his house became a crack house. And, you know, he became this angry young man. And, you know, his way of dealing it was to go out and sell drugs and, uh, you know, just... Uh, didn't work, but he ended up in jail. I ended up, I ended up meeting him, and 
He didn't have one thing to do with me because his mindset was that, you know, he's just angry. He's hurt. That's really what it is. Um, he, he, he got out, came to the program, and, you know, I, I took him through. I started giving him the medicine. <laughs> started giving him the medicine, the prescription. There were days he didn't take it. There were days he did, you know. This, but he stuck with the program. Uh, I asked him, what do you want to do? He ended up going to Laney for a couple of years. And then I said, I said, where do you want to go? You want to go to Morehouse? I said, you want to go to Morehouse? He said, you go to Morehouse? Uh, he went to Morehouse, had a struggle through Morehouse because he actually, you can imagine all the things that happened in his life. He had anxiety disorder. Mm. You know, I remember one semester he got right to the end when he was getting ready to take his finals and he just completely blanked out. Uh, but he stuck with it. We, we you know, we, we took him through. Uh, we basically became his family. That's how I said, you know, these kids really lack family. So we end up being our family. I'm everybody's dad. Let's put it like <laughs> that, right? I kept, I gave him the money. He ended up graduating with a degree from Morehouse. And he not, right now he works in EMT. He's training other young people right? to become EMT. Uh, Michael Gibson, uh, one of my, you know, big Incredible success story. for I call it from jailhouse to the schoolhouse. But yeah. I always say one person can do a lot of damage. One person can do a lot of good. And it's, it's either one or the other, yep. right? So... He's doing he, he's doing well, but that, believe me, that's just one. I got a whole bunch of uh, stories like that. So, Tanya, your successes are of a kind of a different order. But as Joe's saying, his work really depends in some ways on your successes. There's a real connection <laughs> or, here, or, or fees, because I want to produce people. For that's her. right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. But talk to us about one of the uh, successes you've been most proud of. Um, successes for myself or employees? Well, for, your, or for your work, an for outcome work. of your because you've done so many things, whether it's cookbooks or restaurants or, you know, uh, yeah, well, TV. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a couple things, but one um, I'm really proud of because, you know, I, I went, I applied to engineering schools, but I end up with a degree in Russian language and literature. <laughs> so talk about security. Sec- Circuitous route, right? yes, very. Um, just because it was an elective I was taking, and I was failing calculus, and I was getting A's in Russian. So I said, I'm going to major in Russian. And what was I going to do with the degree? I had no idea. And all the opportunities when I graduated were in government agencies, and that didn't seem like me at all. And so, like I said, I ended up going advertising. And, you know, it was just turned out to be this nice little liberal arts degree. Well, last year, I got an email from the State Department saying that they were requesting me to be a culinary diplomat to go to Kazakhstan and teach them about soul food. Wow. And the Foreign Service officer found me. He was Googling he, a soul food chef, and then he scrolled down and saw that I spoke Russian, and it was like, bingo. Good for you. So I called my dad. I was like, the degree is finally paying That's off. <laughs> paying off in a big way. Um, yeah. And That's it was, an incredible story. Yeah, it was, it was you great. You never know. You, just, right? you never know. And I had been to the uh, former Soviet Union in uh, 1985, but it was great to, you know, to return to that area of the world and um, use all my skills, my language. And also, again, it's just... I've always, you know, I've been raised to think like people are going to come along, uh, come together over food, and it just it breaks down a lot of cultural barriers. It creates a lot of cultural understanding. Um, my oh, favorite thing to is to, is to feed people. I, I say to people like it's not even about cooking for me. It's if I've got a bag of chips, I'm feeding you, you know. And again, that's why I love the mission of Share Our Strength because it's it's all about feeding people, and you know. Can't do anything unless you're well fed, right? You, 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 <laughs> we do it with the club. Tomorrow night, we got a whole bunch of new kids coming. They'll eat. They'll, they'll feel like it, it. You know, it make you feel like family. Yeah. And family is really the basis of everything anywhere in the world. Connection. Period. Connecting to people. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm Billy Shore, and I'm here with Tanya Holland from Brown Sugar Kitchen, a chef and owner, cookbook author, Food Network star, and Dr. Joe Marshall from Alive and Free, who's made such an impact on uh, the kids in the Bay Area and uh, by extension and by training kids all over this country. Thank you both for being with me. Tanya, Joe, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you'll go to our website, shareourstrength.org slash passion, to discover how you can get involved to make a difference in your community. Add passion and stir. Big chefs, big ideas is the podcast from Share Our Strength. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm your host, Billy Shore. 